Good morning. My name's Ross Gilbert. Welcome to New Life Fellowship. I'm excited about the, this morning. You know, they say you get one chance to make a good first impression, so don't screw up. And uh, that's, that's nerve-wracking for people like me. Um, you know, the last, uh, the last 15 years, uh, I've been working as a counselor at, uh, at Crossways to Life, and uh, so I've had a lot of opportunities for that first impression uh, when you meet people and they come into your office. And, um, you know, when I, when I first started, I was, I was not even 30 years old. And I had, not only that, I had a very young baby face. And so I'd always, I always kind of look at people when they walked into the office and they said, oh, you're the counselor. <laughs> and, uh, and they would go along with it for a while. And then every, every so often you knew that they were really struggling because they'd say, so how? old are you? Because when you're coming for counseling, right, you want, you want someone who's wise, someone who's, you know, got great insight and experience. And when you see someone who looks about five years younger than they already are, and they already are young, then it's nerve wracking for people. And, uh, and then there is others who didn't ask that question until later on. And they confessed then. I wasn't sure what you'd have to offer. But, but they, and then eventually, you know, kind of came around to understanding that it wasn't the wisdom that I have, but it was the wisdom of God. But it was that first impression that was, uh, was always exciting for people to, to kind of get over. Could they get past that or not? Uh, sometimes it's their, just their first impression with counseling at all. They would tell me about how they've, they've tried other counseling and it didn't work and, and it kind of turned them off to it. And so what they're saying basically was, I know I need it, but I've yet to see it actually work. And, and so really what it is, it's, it's not so much that the counseling didn't work, they just had a bad experience with it. They've experienced bad counseling, and that was really the problem. You might relate to it in this way, that, that you, we all need to go to the dentist, right? And yet, maybe you went to a dentist and you had a bad experience there. Maybe, maybe it was painful, or, or uh, the, they did something really weird and it didn't work very well. Or you had to go back because the first time didn't work. Or, or maybe you just, you know, had a really bad bill, and that was what was so scary about it. But, you know, the end of it, it left you with a, a bad taste in your mouth. No pun intended. And so now you're kind of struggling. You know, do I go back to the dentist? I know I'm supposed to, but I don't really want to. Or, or maybe your first introduction to, to a certain kind of music, maybe like classical music, you know, everyone says it's so beautiful, it's so great, but your first exposure to it is done by the grade six band and they just didn't do a very good job with it. And so now it's forever turned you off of classical music. Again, it's not so much the music itself, it's your experience with it that's been the problem. And I think that's kind of true for you and I when it comes to community. We all know we need community. We all know that we're not, we're not meant to, to live in this world on our own. I mean, in the opening chapters of, of Genesis, in, in chapter, chapter 2, it, God looks at man. He looks at Adam all by himself, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. We know we weren't created to be alone. We're not meant to live on an island. We're meant for this larger community. But, but it's scary. It's terrifying because so many of us have experienced bad community. We haven't experienced what's good and what's healthy and what's right. And so what ends up happening now is we kind of pull ourselves away and isolate ourselves from that community. But there's a great danger in that. I mean, you think about how lions attack. 
You know, lions will come up on a herd and there'll be this massive herd of zebras, for example. They don't just run in and go grab a, the first zebra they see. Because chances are, if they did that, the whole herd would come and, and defend that one zebra and defeat the lions. So what do they do? They wait for that one zebra to wander off. To kind of leave the pack and be isolated and then that pack of lions go and attacks that one all by himself. And that one zebra doesn't stand a chance. And so Peter warns us that our enemy is like a prowling lion, roaming, looking for those whom he can destroy, who he could devour. And he's going to find the one who sort of isolated themselves, pulled themselves away from the larger pack and thereby becoming far more vulnerable. And so that's what we need to understand is how do, I, how do I stay safe and find that community that I need, but more importantly, how do I find good community, healthy community? So that's what we want to talk about this morning. So let's pray. Father, this is such a, a critical aspect of our faith. It's, it's part of who you are. You've, you're wired for community. That's why you, you redeemed and rescued us so that we can be invited into union with you. But we're also meant for community with one another because it's with that one another that we're going to experience that community with you. And so this morning as we look at this topic, I pray, Father, for your insight and your wisdom and that we would have a, a healing and redemption and a, a new attitude towards community. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, I often ask people, I give them a hypothetical question, a scenario. I said, given the option between two groups of people, uh, one being a group of complete strangers who you'll never see again, and the other being your local church, people that you know, your friends, your family. If you had the choice, to ha you had to go and share your deepest, darkest secrets, the, the things that you're terrified about, the things that you're ashamed of, you're embarrassed of, either what happened to you or what you did, all your, your great struggles, your addictions, your, your sins, if you had to share all of that unfiltered with only one group, which group would you choose? The complete strangers who you'll never see again or the church or your closest friends who you're going to see day in, day out, week after week? Well, guess which answer inevitably comes up. More often than not, far more often, the answer without, ever, without even a hesitation is give me the strangers because that's safer because I can share all that, unload all that, and they won't judge me. They won't criticize me. They won't look at me differently and therefore it's safer. But if I were to do that with the people I know, the people that are closest to me, oh, what would they think? What would they say about me afterwards? How would, they, how would they treat me? And how would they look at me? I just, I couldn't imagine doing that. That's not safe. And that, that breaks my heart. That, that's the opposite of what it should be. It should be that these strangers who don't know you, have nothing invested in you, have no, no reason to cheer for you. How can that ever be safer than the people who know you and love you and are closest to you? And the answer is because these people over here, the strangers who don't know me, they won't judge me and they don't care. And that's wonderful not to be judged, but they also don't care. Whereas the church, they, the people who are closest to us, they ought to be the ones who know us the most, who are most invested in us, who most care about you and I, and therefore are connected to us closest. But again, we've had 
a lot of negative experiences in our churches, a lot of negative experiences in, by those who are closest to us because it hasn't been that safe place. It needs to be and ought to be, but it's not often. In fact, it's often been a dangerous place. It's been a place where, where we've been hurt more often than not. And again, I, I wish I could say it was only, you know, a particular, maybe your family or, or a group of people who don't know Jesus, but often it's the church that is the scariest place to reveal your hurts and your shame. And again, it's not that church is wrong. It's just that we've misunderstood community. I love in that video that we saw how John Lynch put it, he talked about a community of good intentions. And I, see that, I think that's what often ends up happening in our churches is we have this, this community of good intentions opposed to a community of grace. See, a community of good intentions is they mean well, but because they don't fully understand grace, they don't fully understand what God's wanting to do, they don't fully understand love, it ends up being a community of good intentions, which ends up leaving us hurt. So before we understand what a community of grace is, I want us to understand what it's not. What is what this community of good intentions ends up looking like? And so we got some things that we'll put up here. Uh, number one there uh, that I think ha- ends up happening, and we saw this in the video, is our, f- our focus ends up on working hard to please God. See, the subtle message in these communities of good intentions is that while God always loves you, that's true, he's often disappointed and upset with you when you screw up. When you, when you struggle with that sin or when you, you struggle based on, the, you know, your growth and your maturity. And so we had this idea that, that we always need to keep moving forward. Otherwise, otherwise God's going to withhold stuff from us. And so we end up looking for these standards, these, these expectations to determine how well am I measuring up? How well am I doing, you know, today? How well am I doing in other people's eyes? And, and so I hear it because, you know, we say, we, we have this message of the gospel, this evangelistic message that says, come to Jesus no matter what, just as you are, with all your faults, with all your sin, with all your struggles, just come as you are because God loves you. And so we have that inv- invitation. They, they come and they receive that embrace from Jesus. And then what happens to the message? Well, now you can't stay just as you are. Now you got to make sure you improve. You got to make sure you, you fix this and you fix that. And suddenly now God isn't as loving as he was when you're all messed up and dirty because you ought not to have any struggles anymore. And so what ends up happening now is, is we begin to measure our, ourselves based on what we do. Our behavior and our performance are the standards by which we end up measuring our spiritual maturity and our acceptance. The big problem with that is how much is enough? How much do I have to do in order to be okay? How much do I have to read my Bible? How much do I have to pray? How much do I have to give? How much do I have to serve in order that I could qualify, in order that I will measure up to that standard? And what ends up happening is we we change our focus from Jesus and how much he loves you unconditionally. How much he loves you just as you are. And we begin to fixate and focus on our actions and our behavior and how we best can clean it up. And so what happens in these communities of good intentions, in these communities where they don't understand grace, is we end up focusing on managing our sin using the shoulds and ought tos and musts. 
We implement all these, these formulas and these, these rules. You can listen to this music, but not that music. You can watch this video, but not that video. You can go here, but not go there. You can say this, but you can't say this. And so we get these accountability groups now. And the accountability groups, again, with a good intention, thinking that the goal is to, to clean up the behavior, ends up missing the big point. See, the, the big goal of Christianity is not morality. It's not sobriety. It's not abstinence from particular behaviors and sins. That's not what God's looking for. He's not after your clean moral life. He's after your heart and experiencing his life with him. That's what he's after. But often these accountability groups just focus in on the sin. They focus in on the behavior. And so what ends up happening is what we share with these groups ends up being used against us. They, they take, we, we share our struggles, and, and instead of it being a safe place, it's, it's used against us. And, and so now we're feeling more shame, and we're, we're feeling worse because that's all they see us as. They see us as a screw-up. They see us as damaged goods. They see us as something's wrong with you and I. So what ends up happening is we, we're afraid to share that with people. We're afraid to, to share our heart and open ourselves up, and so we only know one another from a distance. We kind of adopt the, the posture that, that is not so welcoming anymore. Instead of arms wide open, it's, it's one hand up as a stop sign and the other hand over our heart. Because i got to keep you at a safe distance. I can't let you get too close because if you get too close to me, then I'm going to get hurt. And so i got my hand up and my hand over my heart to make sure I don't get hurt. The problem is, while you might keep love out or keep a hurt out, you're definitely keeping love out. And you end up feeling more alone and more isolated. And so we end up just trying to keep this perfectly crafted image of ourselves. And so everyone's fine. Everyone's pretending that they have it all together. I'm told that the, the place where the most lies are told are Sunday morning at church. Because people ask you, how you doing, brother? Good to see you, sister. And what's the answer? The F word, right? Fine. We're all doing fine. Everything's great fine. Meanwhile, five minutes ago, while you're in the car, you're screaming at the kids because they wouldn't just sit quietly. But you're fine now. Maybe, maybe half hour or an hour ago, you couldn't get out of bed because you didn't know if life was even worth living. And, and you were just praying that God would somehow bring end to this misery. But suddenly you're fine. Everything's okay. We can't be honest with one another. And, and what makes it even worse is because everyone's playing this game of being fine is I start to think maybe I'm the only one. That maybe I'm the only one that's struggling with all this because everyone else seems to be fine. And, and so I can't, I can't share that with them because if I share with them my struggle, if I were to reveal to them the degree to which I'm, I'm miserable right now, then they're going to think something's wrong with me. And I won't be okay anymore. And so we end up hiding all that. And then what ends up happening in these communities of good intentions, these communities where they don't understand grace, is control becomes the name of the game. Where everything is being done trying to make sure that people behave and act in certain ways because your behavior, your success somehow reflects on me. 
And so we control one another. We control their behaviors. We control what they're doing, what they're not doing. But the reality is Jesus didn't come to control us. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. He's not about trying to control us. See, the result of all this, of living in these communities of good intentions, is we experience absolute misery and total defeat. We end up hiding these problems. We end up feeling more alone and more isolated. We're now like that, that zebra has been separated from the pack that the enemy can just pounce on and devour and destroy. We, we pretend, we bluff, we, we try to go through the motions of life, but we just end up growing more and more cold, more and more numb, and we think there's got to be more to this. If I, could, if I could describe it in this way, our soul becomes emaciated. You think about those pictures you would see of, uh, of the, the survivors from the Holocaust. The people who were in those, those concentration camps and they were fed nothing and, and they were living off of nothing and they were literally just skin hanging off bones. And that describes what happens to our souls when we live either isolated from communities or in a community of good intentions where I have to be protecting and cautious all the time. We're not being fed. Because what we're looking for and what we all need to experience is love. That's what we need. But you see, we don't understand love. See, love is such an overused word. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love sports. I love playing sports. I love watching sports. I love the Raptors and the Blue Jays and the Maple Leafs. And, and, and I even love the Argonauts, for goodness sake. I, I love potato chips. But I don't love all of them equally. I'm not going to tell you which I love more because I put my wife and my kids in that list. I just want to just want to keep it safe, right? But, but we use that term, love, for all these various things, but we don't really understand love. And yet, it's so critical to you and I. You know, in John 13, verse 34, we read this great command that Jesus gives to us. It's the, the night of his arrest, and the night before he's about to be crucified, and he's got his disciples around him, and he, he's, they've been with him for three and a half years, and he says, I give you a new command. This is, this is what I want to see happen. I want to give you a new command, that you would love others as I have loved you. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. I've been here. I've been with you for three and a half years. How I have, have been a someone to you in a way that is caring and compassionate and loving. And it goes, I want you to do that with everyone else now. Love others as I've loved you. That's simple. No problem. But again, we don't understand love. The, 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 there's a specific word here that, that was recorded for us in the Greek here. And the, the word is agape. And, and again, modern translations have used it and translated it as love, but but you know, the King James Bible, it translated as charity. And I almost, I almost prefer that word charity over love. Almost, except for how we've even lost the meaning of charity. Nowadays, charity is almost a negative thing. Charity is where somebody greater helps out someone who's lower, right? So, you know, someone who's very well off and very rich, they might help someone who's poor. 
or you have charity, you might have a wealthy nation supporting a poor nation. And so there's a, a, a strong imbalance of power, a strong imbalance of, of value and worth often in that case. And we talk about, well, I'm a charity case, it's in a negative way. But that's not how that charity, that word charity used to mean. Charity really was giving oneself to another. Oh, I, I like that one. I think that, that fits this idea of love. It, laying down your life for another. That's what Jesus did for us. Or, or put another way, doing what's in another person's best interest. That's what love is. Even, even if it's at my own expense. Even if it means that I'm going to lose out on something. I'm willing to do it. Lay aside my interest for another's interest for their benefit because that's love. And when you understand love in that sense, hopefully you understand that this is a mission impossible. Sort of like what Greg said last week, right? About how the Christian life isn't difficult to live. It's impossible for you and I to live. It's impossible for you and I to pull that off. Only God can do it. Because only God is love. Only God is agape. That's what we read about in 1 John 4, 4. That God is agape. And so you and I, are, we can't create that kind of love. We can't do that kind of love on our own. Only God can pull that off. And so that's the key element to this community of grace. It's a community of love. It's, it's a community where we're experiencing and we're expressing that agape, unconditional, unmerited, perfect love of God that only can be done by God. So how do we describe that? I mean, now it's really mission impossible. I mean, if God is agape, if God is love, if, if God is grace, how do we define it? Not a single word, not a single phrase will begin to touch it. So we're going to try to describe it a little bit to some degree, to some detail with a bunch of phrases. And I think the person who's probably described this better than most is a guy named John Lynch. So he came up with a list of, of what a community of grace could look like from one of his books he wrote on my worst day. And so we're going to, we're going to kind of plagiarize that because it's written so well. It describes it so well. He says, imagine with me a place. Imagine a community of believers where we're drawing out each other's new natures instead of comparing behaviors. See, God's done this incredible work. He's done this incredible transformation in you and I that we're brand new creations. We've been talking about that the last number of weeks of how the old self was crucified and buried with Christ in order that you could be born again as someone new, as someone different, with a new nature, a new heart. And well, what if when we gathered together, whether it be on Sunday morning or throughout the week, when we gathered together, our focus wasn't on, well, are you making sure you're not doing this anymore? Are we making sure that you're not, not saying bad words and you're not watching bad movies and you're not going to bad places? What if the focus was on encouraging us to be who you are? Do you know that you're Christ in flow and bringing out that life of Christ out of flow so that the rest of us could experience Christ in flow? What if we could begin to understand that that's what a community of grace is? Where we're moving closer to each other when we fail, gaining permission earning the right to protect one another for when it happens. That, 
that to me, I think, is such a beautiful picture where, where we're, we're inviting people to say, when you're struggling, come to me. When you're, when you're needing help, come to me because I'll, I'll be right there for you. I will, I will protect you from whatever you're going up against, be it from the enemy's attacks or from shame or from struggles. I will love you right here, right now. And when you find people like that, that's a good person. You know, a good person, you, you can get to know what a good person is like just by how they listen to people. See, I think of a, a good person as someone who is, when they're listening to people, they're present and they're engaged. You, you might have seen it. You might have done it yourself, but you might have seen it where you're talking to someone and they're constantly always looking over your shoulder, always looking to see who the next person is because they're waiting to have the next conversation and they're just sort of waiting for a pause to tie things up and they can move on and they're not really interested in what you're saying. Wives, you've probably seen that with your husbands. But a good person is someone who's present, who's fully engaged, fully listening, fully aware of what you're saying, not to fix not to, not to offer the quick solution because that's not it. I'm not interested in fixing you. I'm simply interested in loving you. And maybe there is a fix. Maybe there is a solution to what's being said. But I'm more interested in just letting you know that I love you. Even if the problem never gets fixed. And so these communities of grace are creating environments of grace where it's safe to not hide. Where it's safe to say, I'm struggling and I'm struggling today. You know, typically when people get up and they share a testimony, they share, they share a story of how they struggled, but they've overcome that struggle and they don't struggle anymore. And that's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. That's, that is worthy of praise and worthy to be heard. And we need to hear those stories. But the reality is sometimes we need to hear stories where someone says, I'm, I'm struggling from here and I've found some victory, but I'm still struggling today. And that's Okay. You have permission to struggle. You have permission to not have it all together. Because that's not the goal. The goal isn't to be a finished product. We're not supposed to be a finished product. Even God says that you're not a finished product, that you will be sometime in the future. But right now, where you are, it's okay to struggle with anxiety. It's okay to struggle with despair. It's okay to struggle with addiction, with, with uh, temptation, with lust, wherever you're at. It's okay. And these communities of graces, we will wrap our arms around you and embrace you no matter what. Not with the goal to fix you, but with the goal to love you. It's a place where we get to enjoy the intimate and unguarded closeness of God that he's already pleased with us. That's a message we're going to keep pounding over and over and over again. There is nothing, nothing, nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God like you more. Or there's nothing you can do to make him like you less. Because there's nothing you can do to disappoint his heart. You can't hurt him. He's never shocked. He's never surprised by what you do. He says, I knew about that from before the foundations of the world, but I chose to love you anyways. My love, my acceptance, my approval for you never changes. It is as solid as a rock. It's bombproof. You can't destroy it. You can't upset it. 
Imagine a place, John says, where we're reaching others with a gospel of hope that is for today, for today much more than a pathway to get to heaven. This is not the, 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 the roadmap in the course that if you start to act and follow these rules, then one day you'll make it to heaven. No. No, the reality is we've already been accepted. The scripture says you and I have already been seated in the heavenly places. And so it's just getting to experience that victory and that life today. He says, imagine a place where we're living out of heartfelt obedience instead of religious compliance. Where you get to, not because you have to, but because you want to. It's a place where you're giving our life away as a response of love, not as an effort to assuage our shame. We're not trying to provide penance. We're not trying to pay God back. Because how could you ever pay God back? Whatever you were to offer God in, in, in return for what he's done for us, simply uh, waters down and insults what he's offered to us. He says, given my life for you. Well, what can I ever give back to him that would ever come close to that? Nothing. And he says, but I don't want anything back in terms of your work and your service. All I want is for you to be with me. I want your heart. That's it. It's a place where we're breaking the ought code that's ruining our kids for intimacy with Jesus. Imagine a place where we're taking off the moralistic filter of God's word that believes he condemns us. It's believing that we are adored on our worst day so we're free to take off the mask. Here I am today. I don't have it all together. I'm not happy. I'm not pleased. I'm not, I'm not feeling the joy of the Lord today. I'm doubting in my faith. Is that okay? Absolutely. It's the perfect place to be because you're here. It's resting in the absolute reality that shame-free story has already been purchased for us. And this one last one I would add, it's a group that's defined by their love. Not by their style of worship, not by how they dress, not by how they get together, but the group that's defined by their love. Love defined as protection, support, and care for one another. Not our political affiliation, not how polite or proper or how we behave in public. None of that defines us, but we're defined by how we love one another. Because we need that. We need one another. In Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 to 12, why Solomon writes this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so you get this strength in numbers aspect. Where again, that zebra all by himself will be devoured. If he falls, how, who's going to help him up? The same is true for you and I. But when we're together in a community of grace, we can surround and protect and love one another. The hardest thing though, is realizing that I need that. See, one of the hardest things you will ever say is, I need you. Not I need you because you're the source, that's God, but it's that recognizing that God works through people. He works through his church. And for us to say, for me to experience God, I need you in order to experience that. 
And that's a terrifying thing for people to experience. So in our counseling office, one of the things that we have there as a tool to help people understand what they're struggling with is this thing called the shame test. And, uh, and we've been using it in our counseling and our teaching, our training for, you know, the whole time I've been there for 15 years and uh, given out to more people than I can count. And, and it, it kind of gives you a score on how much shame controls and, and dominates your thinking. And, uh, and I don't know if this is something to be proud of or not, but nobody, in all the people I've handed this test out, nobody has scored higher than me on shame. Again, I don't know if that's something to be proud of or not, but I guess take it what you got, right? So, so what's shame? Shame is that, that nagging voice in the back of your mind. That, that voice that sometimes whispers, sometimes screams at you that you're flawed, you're not good enough, you're broken, you're damaged, you're dirty, you're disgusting, you're ugly, you'll never be loved, you're weak. If others found out what was really going on inside of you, if others knew what we know about you, they would reject you, they would want nothing to do with you. And so that voice of shame just causes us to retreat and hide from people. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They, they, they were naked and unashamed, the scripture says. And then they ate from the tree and the knowledge of good and evil. And their first instinct is to hide from one another. Because shame now had entered into their psyche, entered into their being. All they could see when they looked at themselves was this shameful version of themselves. And so shame is my constant companion. I, I don't remember the last day I went where shame did not whisper something into my mind trying to pull me down. Trying to say that, that I, I, I better run away from this and what do I have to offer and I'll never be good enough and I can't do that well enough and, and just it completely wants to cripple me. Sometimes it's just a memory from, from something I said carelessly. And everything inside me just wants to shrivel up. I physically react. I, I just begin to tighten up everything. And sometimes I just want to scream because I'm just so embarrassed. I'm so humiliated. I have such regret for a careless word that I said or a mistake that I made or forgetting to do something. And that just happens regularly. And, and so when the shame begins to attack, then, then you got to find relief. You got you to do something. You can't just listen to the voice of shame. It's just beating you. It's just beating you. So I got I to hide. I got to run. I got to do something. And, and so at that moment, I, I want to do anything different. Either I retreat or I, 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 I just got to act out in some kind of sinful behavior. I'm just looking to feel different in that moment. More often than not, I just don't want to feel anything. So I hide to... Netflix and watching movies and TV or I, I retreat to isolate myself. And in that moment, I'm like that zebra pulling away from the herd. And instead of shame backing off saying, ah, mission accomplished, shame now fully launches its attack on me. And I just begin to shrivel up. And so it's in that moment where I need you. I need you as, as a community of grace to come alongside me and to protect me and tell me the truth about who I am because shame has so compromised my view of myself that I do not see myself as who I really am. 
See, people will come up to me and say compliments, but I can't receive it because that's not what I see. I see myself through the shame. Like, like an anorexic who sees themselves in the mirror, instead of realizing that 30 pounds or 60 pounds underweight, they see themselves as 20 pounds overweight. Their view is so compromised, they don't see the truth. I need you to tell me the truth of who I am. Because in those moments of shame, you know me better than I know myself. And I need you to be there to tell me, and I need to trust that that's true. That's what happens in a community of grace. That's what happens when we can protect one another. Because then there's other days where you need me. Where my view of you is more accurate and more true than how you see yourself. I often, I often long that you could have about two minutes where you could see yourselves the way I see you. If you had two minutes to see how beautiful, how powerful, how awesome you are and how I see you, you'd probably never struggle with that shame again. And if that's how I see you, imagine how your loving father sees you. And we need to be reminded of that ongoing every day throughout, throughout our lives. Not just on the good days, but on the bad days, especially those bad days. Because if we can do that, now we stand a chance. Now we stand a chance of standing firm in the truth of who we are. Are you beginning to see the importance and the necessity of this love? This community of grace. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 24 and 25, we have a very often quoted verse, but I think we've never really understood the purpose of this verse. Often quoted, it says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the, do, see the day drawing near. See, I've often heard that verse quoted about don't forsake the gathering of the brethren, right? Don't, don't miss out on getting together. Make sure you're coming out to church. And it's been used as a, as a bit of a, 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 a stick to beat people up to make sure that they're present at church on Sunday. But we miss the point. He's not giving you a command to measure up to when he says come out to church. Come gather together. What he's saying is, don't miss out on the opportunity to encourage one another. And when you gather together, it's providing that opportunity to stay with the herd, to stay protected. It's providing that opportunity that God so desires to speak into your heart, to speak into your life what's true of who you are, so that when the enemy attacks, he won't have as much hit or much power on you. You'll be able to rebuke him and fight back. The problem is that it's still scary. And it's scary because it involves a risk and a danger of being hurt. And I would love to stand up here and say, oh, but new life is different. Oh, and, and new life, you, will you won't ever get hurt. I guarantee you, Chris, at New Life, you're always going to be loved. You're always going to be accepted. You'll never find a negative thing here at New Life. I wish I could say that. But I can't. Because Marco's here. <laughs> I'm kidding. 
I wish I could say that, but the reality is you're going to get hurt. Sometimes inadvertently, maybe even on purpose. But the reward is worth the risk because the risk, if you, if you, if you avoid the risk and you never let anyone in, you're guaranteed to be hurt. But if you allow a group of friends to come alongside you, and I don't mean Facebook friends. I mean real authentic relationships. You allow those people into your lives, into your heart. It can begin to make a difference. And, and this community of grace is a big reason why we started this new plant, this new church at New Life. You see, if, I'm, if I can put it really bluntly or really simply, it's this. I loved hanging out with, with these people and I needed an excuse to get together with them regularly. And so we started this church. That's really all it is. It's just merely excuse so that I can hang out with Angela because I love seeing her. And so we started this church so I have an excuse for Angela and I to get together because before New Life, we just didn't have the excuse. But now we do. And so it's an opportunity for us to hang out as a group. And that's what this church, this new life is all about. And so I want to encourage you to think about becoming more involved. Now I understand it's a church plant and it's new and maybe some of you are just kind of testing us out and seeing what we're like and that's great, that's wonderful. But I want to encourage you for the, to experience the full community of grace experience, the full new life experience is to become involved. And here's why. It's not to feed the machinery. It's not to feed the church so we can keep going. Well, we need people to help in Sunday school. We need you to help at, you know, at tech. We need you to help on worship. That's it, not the point of it. The point of getting involved is to rub shoulders. The point of getting involved is to get to know people more and more. It's to build that community of grace. To build those people that will be there for you when you struggle. Not if, when. You see, we need to understand that the crisis is coming. And if, if you're not prepared for the crisis with having that community of grace around you, that when that crisis hits, you'll be taken out. But if, if you prepare for it, if you build that community, you build that network and those friends and that safe environment, when the crisis hits, a loved one passes away. A problem in the relationship. Sin begins to overtake your life and control you. Despair, anxiety, loss of a job, whatever it is you're up against, because you've got that network, you, you can say in the, the faintest of voices, help. And you will see the Calvary come charging to your aid. The body of Christ representing and expressing the love and the strength and the power of Jesus to all of us. And that's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom and the privilege to be in a family, to be in your family, which has so many repercussions. I mean, we're your child. That means... You're this good, good father who loves us and accepts us and we can rest in that knowledge. That there's nothing we need to do to become better, to improve on ourselves. We just get to rest in the truth of who we are. 
But in this family, it's not just you as a father. We've got new brothers and sisters now. Brothers and sisters that don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't think like us at times and, and, and have different preferences and tastes. And yet we share this common uniting love, not just for you, but for one another. I pray, Father, that we would be willing to trust you and risk not only giving love, but risk receiving love from others by opening ourselves up to that. Thank you for your perfect grace for us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, you're welcome to hang around here. If, you're, if your kids are in the, the, minute, the children's Sunday school, go pick them up uh, so that those, those workers there aren't uh, dying over there. Uh, I worked, I did the Sunday school last week, and all I can say is God bless you people. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of fun. Um, but... Uh, they call it the lines then for a reason. So, but uh, hang around, right? Let's, let's build these relationships. There's people I guarantee here you don't know, and there's people I guarantee that you'll want to know more. So have a great day.